years ago, uh, friends of ours had uh, a child, and they were trying to convince the child of how negative and inappropriate their speech was, and uh, their child just was not hearing it. And so on a given morning, they secretly videotaped the interaction that this child had with their parents around the table, and then they played it for the child later, after the dust had settled, I think it was at the end of that day. And when the child saw the recording, they were actually shocked and surprised. They couldn't believe that's the way they sounded. But it was, they sort of needed a slap in the face to come to grips with what the words of their mouth were and what they sounded like to others. So question for you as we get started. If someone secretly recorded your words throughout the week, what, what would that sound like? And by this, I, I don't mean sort of our best moments or our worst, but what would be typical of us if we were secretly recorded? What would be typical of our speech through a week? And it's not, uh, words are important, right? But, but words come from some place. So scripture says that it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. So our words are really a gauge, they're a metric on what's going on in our heart. So Mark talked about it's our affections, it's our emotions, it's what's important to us. That's ultimately what comes out of our mouth. It doesn't start here, it starts here. So just take a moment, if I'm thinking about in the ways that I can, the ways I can be objective about myself without that secret recording. What would others say was typical of Mike or of you about a, the words of my mouth? What, what's, what do they reflect? What kind of attitudes of the heart do they reflect? What's typical of me? Is my speech more often characterized by negativity, complaining, put down, sarcasm, or by thanksgiving, uplifting comments, and praise. You know, we live in a, historically, days that are unprecedented. And maybe we could say that at any point. But, you know, technologically, life sort of had gone along the way it had for millennia until you get to the, the uh, scientific age, the industrial age, and suddenly everything just shifts forward incredibly fast. And we're in a communication and a technology age. And part of what that means is, there's a whole lot of communication occurring. And guys, and it's occurring within a, uh, an incredibly polarized culture that the divisions in the culture are deeper and wider and we've got more opportunities to talk about those deep, wide divisions than ever before. So not just the news, you know, not just television, we've got phones, we've got social media. Etc. So we've got a whole lot of words flying, and they're flying in a culture in which it's popular or easy to be polarized dramatically so on one side or the other. Now, without saying we shouldn't make distinguishing comments about truth or what's important, more having to do with not only what we're saying, but how we're saying it why we're saying it, what, what's it coming from. That's really what we're talking about this morning. Christians, followers of Jesus, should be characterized by an attitude of thanksgiving 
that comes out, again, thinking of uh, Mark's introduction to the service and also thinking about Willie's Sunday School this morning, should be coming uh, out of an attitude of thanksgiving to our Creator, our Savior, and the one who sustains us day by day. That's the biblical call. And we've been in Psalms and we'll be in Psalm 33 this morning. But are we characterized by an attitude and therefore a vocabulary or a dialogue that reflects this humility and this thanks and this praise for our maker? Because that's what we're called to. And I think it's particularly challenging today because of the time the social dynamics that are going on, it's far easier, I think, to fall into these chasms of negativity, sarcasm, put-downs than it is to focus on God and who He is and what He's done and, and the repercussions of that for us. So words reflect attitudes. Words reflect the, the, the emphasis that is going on inside. That's just the, just the indicator. So what's... What's our indicator say about us and where our heart is at? We're in Psalm 33 this morning. It's a song of praise. It's a call to God's people to praise Him as the only sensible thing to do when we consider who He is, what He's like, and what our ultimate hopes are. So are our words characterized by thanks? You could use different, you could say worship. Thanksgiving is probably the one that most comes most readily to my mind. You could say praise, but really that focus towards God, giving him his due because of who he is and what he's done. There's no heading to this song. Most of the songs will say it's from David or it's to be played this way. There's no heading in, on this song. So we really don't know anything about the background, when it was or who it was. Last week we looked at Psalm 32, and Psalm 32 was very narrowly focused on confession of sin and forgiveness. And then it ended on this great call to shout for joy. That was the end of Psalm 32. Well, Psalm 33 picks up with the same call. So Psalm 32 ends, and I've been forgiven. Psalm 33 begins, and it's the same call, shout with joy, you righteous. Now, Psalm 32 was, was frankly easy to teach, and it's easy to take in as a lesson because it's one singular point. Psalm 33 starts with the same call to joyful shouting, thanksgiving, praise, celebration, but instead of a singular element, it's really picking up four key lenses by which the psalmist is calling us to think about God, look at God, and therefore give him his due in thanks and praise for it requires a little bit more of us. I'm saying that on the front end, okay? Uh, one, one topic, sort of easy. Four, uh, they, they won't all speak to us evenly, but that's okay. One of them will speak probably more forcefully than another. So as we work through Psalm 33 this morning, be asking yourself this. So the psalmist is going to come, he says, hey, here's four reasons to thank and praise God. There's four. But you might say, well, these are the reasons I would thank God. If I was writing Psalm 33, what would I write? The question for yourself, what, what is it that sparks in me that affection, that thought, that memory to say God is worth praising, God is worth thanking? Where, where am, am I coming from on those causes for thanks and praise? I'm going to read from the ESV. If you use a pew Bible, that's page 463, and we'll take this in blocks again so that we can cover 
the big rocks. This is verses 1 through 3 in the beginning. The psalmist writes, Shout for joy in the Lord, O ye righteous. The righteous are those in right relationship with God. Praise befits the upright. That's those who are walking morally or in a straight line, straight line morally, like in the book of Proverbs. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre, maybe a, a smallish type harp instrument. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings, probably a little bigger one. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with, with loud shouts. So right out of the gate, shout for joy. Guys, if, if you're going to shout for joy, what do you need? You need joy. <laughs> you need joy. If you're going to shout with joy, you've got to have some joy. Now, um, we try and keep it real. Uh, we, we're not interested in being religious or, or playing at church. So if you say, uh, life's hard, guys, and all of us go through challenges, right? I might have sin challenges that just weigh me down. I may have physical challenges. I have made emotional, relational challenges. We're not negating that at all. But if you're a Christian, you have the source of all joy within you as a believer in Jesus Christ. So you start with the promises of God in God's word. That's a pretty good place to start. I can have joy because of what God said. But guys, also, we're saying things like the Holy Spirit in us. This is the age of the Spirit, right? We live in the new covenant. And the Spirit's been given. Every believer in Jesus has been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit lives inside every Christian. And what's one of the chief characteristics of the Holy Spirit? The fruits of the Spirit from Galatians 5 are love, joy, Peace, the Holy Spirit who brings joy with him lives in every Christian, which is to say, no matter what's going on in the world around me, I've got the source of joy inside me. It's not related to circumstance or time or anything else that the source of joy, God himself, God's joy itself, not dependent on external circumstances, lives in me so that I should be characterized as a believer in Jesus by a joyful attitude of heart. Joy should be a regular companion in my journey and my outlook on life. So the psalmist is saying, shout for joy. You've got to have some joy to begin with, or we're just going through religious exercise. We're saying things that we're not feeling the truth of. We don't need to. We should have joy in us as a regular element of life. Psalm 4, verse 7 has always been a favorite of mine along this line. It says, David says to God, you have put more joy in my heart than when their grain and new wine abound or increase. So put this in perspective. If I'm a farmer back in the days in which this is written, the, the vines have been cleared, the juice has been smashed, the wine is fermenting, the grain is in, it's that time of year in which my celebration is the greatest. And David says, Lord, you've, you've given me more joy than the best holiday in the year or the best time of life. I've got more joy from you than the time of life or the occasion in life in which my joy cup would be filled. You overflow me with joy in ways nothing else in the world can, no matter how good it is. The best of the best is still less than the joy God gives me. Or think of this, Romans 15, 13, the God of all hope fills us with joy and peace through simply believing. That's faith. I take God at his word, and taking God at his word, he gives me joy. 
So if we're going to shout with joy, and, and by the way, that's the thing, isn't it? I could say, thank you, Jesus, quietly in my prayers, but the psalmists are calling for shouts, enthusiastic participation in praise and worship. You've got to have some fire in the belly for that, right? It's joy. Uh, verse 1 also says this. Uh, if we didn't get beyond the opening on this psalm, we'd be fine. In fact, if I run long, I'll just, I'll just stick with the opening, okay? Verse 1, praise befits the righteous or the upright. Praise is what we're made for. Uh, we're made as creatures made in God's image. We're, we're made to praise. And guys, this is the difference between us and the animals. You can have a pet and you can say, man, I love my pet. My pet loves me and I'm, I'm good with that. But your, your pet can't, can't interact with you on a similar plane. When God made humanity, he made, he made creatures that could know him in ways nothing else can. And one of the fruits of the knowledge of God is knowing something about the perfections of our creator. The natural fruit of that is to go, wow, awesome, praiseworthy. Thank you for that, for who you are and for what you've done. So praise befits the upright. That's true of creatures, but it's more true of Christians the upright are those who are saved through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a minute. But that's the place we start. When, when we praise, when we give thanks, we're only doing what we're created to do. It's not extra credit. And guys, it shouldn't be hard to do either. You're made and you're redeemed. You have a spirit within you which wants to praise God and wants to give thanks. In fact, this, this notion of befits, the thought is that um, if you went to a tailor and you had a sport coat made to your measurements or you had a dress made for your measurements, it's made for you so that when you put it on, you say, it fits perfectly. I have very long arms and my brother would bring me things and he'd say, here, try this on. I'm like, you don't get it. You don't know how long my arms are. And nothing you give me is going to fit. And I remember one time I put a sweater on and the arms were long enough. I put it on, it's like, it was made for me. Well done. Well, that's the thought here. Praise for Christians is like something that when you put it on, you say, wow, that's made just for me. I'm doing exactly what I'm made to do. And praise, this thought of putting praise on like a garment, it's a perfect fit. So the psalmist is not asking us to do something that's hard you got to start with joy. But he's saying you are made to do this. And you are redeemed to do this. So this shouldn't be hard. That's why it should be characteristic of us. It should be the norm unless and until something else is knocking it out of the way. That's a different issue. But praise befits us. Alan Ross in his commentary says, A believer without praise is like a person who's not properly dressed for the occasion. I forgot to put something on. You know, you run out of the house and you realize, oh, I forgot my wallet or I forgot my jacket. That's the thought. In praise, we give God thanks for who he is and what he's done. Salvation above all. God's common grace is crazy good to us, but God's particular grace and salvation most especially. So what are we thankful for? Just ask yourself that in the moment. What am I thankful for? And this shouldn't be hard because once you start, the list just gets easier because your mind just keeps going to more and more things to be thankful for. 
Uh, giving praise, this is the other thing he brings up right from the beginning. Giving praise includes both our words and music, lyrics and musical instruments. You see that in verses 2 and 3, with a lyre, with a harp, on stringed instruments, with loud shouts, voices, and singing. So the call by the psalmist is words and music wedded together, achieving their highest good, their most excellent end in the praise of God, the maker of music and or the chief musician. Now, if we had no instrumentation, we would sing, we would call it a cappella, and God is pleased with that, right? The, the outflow of our heart in praise to God from our voices only is a good thing. If that's all we do, we're good. There's no, no complaint about that. But music can help us emotionally connect with the truth of the lyrics we sing. Musicians worship as they play. You know, for a musician, playing is an act of worship. I'm, I'm playing for God's glory. That in itself is an act of worship. Uh, but they're helping us enter into the truth of the words of the lyrics. The music isn't an end in itself. It's a means of worship, and it's a help to worship. Now, you know... Uh, it's possible to listen to music and to be caught up emotionally in music that has nothing to do with God. And I'm not even saying that's a bad thing. I think music is part of God's common grace to humanity. It's, it's, it's good, period. Can you abuse it? Of course. But, but here's the thing. I can get caught up in music only, and that's not the same as worship. That's not the same as praise. I'm just caught up in the music, and it's emotionally compelling when we talk about music with worship, we're talking about something that emotionally is compelling, but it moves us body, soul, and spirit towards God in praise and thanks. So it becomes a means to the end. If we go away from a worship service and our focus is on the music, we've confused the means and the end. The music helps us worship God. You remember Jesus said in John 4, God wants us to worship. He's looking for worshipers, but we worship in spirit and truth. The music is meant to help draw us in, as the psalmist says, so that we worship in spirit and in truth. We're incredibly blessed too, I would be negligent not to say. We have great worship teams. We have tech teams that are here every Sunday. They're here early and they help us but they're always helping us towards the end, which is we're seeing God more clearly. We're giving God his due. All those things are helps. They're not the end in themselves, but they're helping the rest of us enter God's presence in thanksgiving and praise. He also says, verse 3, new songs. It's because God's work in your life and mine and in the world, it's always fresh. It's always going on. We can always come up with new songs of worship because God's always at work. Verses 4 and 5, he talks about the four causes for praise that we'll look at. Look at verse 4. For the word, for is because, so why are we called to joyful shouts, praise, and thanksgiving? For because the word of the Lord is upright, all his work is done in faithfulness, he loves righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. So for the psalmist, he's picking four lenses, if you will, by which he's looking at God and saying, these are causes to give thanks and praise. God's word, God's works, 
God's righteousness or justice, and the last, God's steadfast love. So go right to verses 6 through 9. This is the most direct and the most easily applicable, I think. Uh, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? Verse 9. For because he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. So the psalmist here is saying, uh, praise God, give him thanks and adoration because of his, not just his word, but his powerful creative word. By his word, God created the skies and the deep skies. You know, we get these telescopes and we see uh, black holes and we've got the newest technology up in the sky and some on the ground. And you're saying, you know, uh, the cosmos, is, it just keeps getting bigger. Well, this says God spoke it into existence and everything that's in it is there by God's word, by his doing, by simply the power of his word. We talked about this in Sunday school today, creation ex nihilo. God did something no one else can do. He spoke and he created something where nothing was. God's word was creative in the creation itself. So the psalmist is saying, praise God because of his word and his power of his word in creation itself. Look up into the starry sky, he says, and you can see the glories of God's powerful word. Look down to the depths of the sea, he says, and behold, the glories of God's powerful word. I think it's in Job where it says of God speaking, God spoke to the sea and he said, thus far your waves may come and no further. That's the thought that God's word not only creates, but it sustains and it limits everything in creation according to God's word. So the particular point is, that he is creator by power of his word alone. Verse 6, by the word of the Lord, by the breath of his mouth. Verse 9, he spoke, he commanded. So praise God for his word. Verse 8, why should everyone on planet earth stand in reverent awe of him? Because by the creative power of his word alone, everything that is has its existence. Everything that is and everyone that is or has been or will be is here by God's creative word. Now let me ask you a question. If God's word is power, is powerful, and here it's praise for God, and it's, and it's specifically focused on the power of God's word to create, the power of God's word to limit and to form. If God's word is power... Is there any reason why you and I wouldn't be availing ourselves of God's power through his word? So think of this. If I want to harness the power of the sun today, on a sunny day, I can take a solar panel and I can put it out and it'll collect the power of the sun, right? And then I can use it. If I want to tap into the power of God and his word, what might I do? I might read my Bible, I I might read my Bible. It's a suggestion. Might read my Bible. So praise God, the psalmist says, because of the power of God's word, that word created everything that is. In other words, there's nothing more powerful than God and his word. So I worship God. I thank God. I praise him. You get to Psalm 119, by the way. My friend Rick said, you're going to teach Psalm 119, right? I'm like, I don't know. I think it's 172 or 174 verses. 
Uh, but all it does is it, it praises God's word. You know, throughout Scripture, God praises his word for us. It's a major theme. And the psalmist says it should be a theme for us. And it should be one of those things that inspires us to give thanks. God, thanks for your word. Thanks for your word in creation. But thanks for your word today, sustaining me, giving me direction, etc. Brief aside, I want to say this. John 1, in describing Jesus as the word of God, uh, there's, there's theology about uh, Jesus is the revelation of God. Je he's the logos in the Greek. So he's the, he's the ultimate communication from God the Father to us. He's the word. He's the logos. Uh, Hebrews 1 says, uh, In the past God spoke to the fathers in many prophets and ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son. So there's that thought. In the beginning was the word, Jesus, and the word was with God and the word was God. He's the Logos. He's the communication of God. But Psalm 33 also ties in here. Jesus is not only the revelation of God, but he is the power of God. So when you think, when you read John 1 and it says he's the creator, John wants us to think of Genesis 1. In the beginning God created, in the beginning was the word. Jesus is not just the revelation of the Father. Jesus is the power of God's word. Jesus is God's word. So we're meant to pick that up as well. Uh, what passage of God's word draws out my praise and thanks? So think about that for a minute. If you're in scripture, you know, the more you read scripture, the more scripture you realize, now that speaks to me. I, I like that. That's helpful. That's clarifying. If you thought about that, you know, what from God's word has been helpful to me, convicting to me, anything along that line? What passage of God's word can I meditate on to gain joy or to gain the spirit of thanksgiving or praise to really see God as I should? so that I can even praise as I should. Verses 10 through 12 are praise for God's works. Verse 10 says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. In contrast, verse 11, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, that would be Israel, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. So the psalmist turns, this is not quite as direct, the plans and works of the nations are being contrasted with the sovereign plans and works of God. So the nations versus God, the plans and the works. The nations with all their resources, think of politicians, armies, energy, wealth, work hard to bring about their own counsels and plans their works, but it's God's plans, counsels, and works that will stand, that will succeed. So the psalmist is saying, in contrast to the works of the world, what the world's civilizations, empires, rulers are trying to bring about, in contrast to that, God is going to have his way. God is sovereign. His plans, his counsels, that's what's going to rule the day. Not, not all the fabrications of the nations around us. There's a passage in Isaiah 40, probably one of the best-known passages in that long book. But uh, verses 15 through 17, Compared with God, the sum total of all the nations of the world and all their wealth and works are like dust on a scale too insignificant to move a scale. Take all the wealth, all the power, all the counsels, all the works of the world, Isaiah says, put it on a cosmic scale, it's like dust. 
It doesn't move the scale a bit compared to God and God's plans and God's counsels and therefore God's works. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, The rock, God, the immovable one, his work is perfect. Because God himself is perfect, everything he does, all his works are perfect. They're flawless. They're all they should be, nothing they shouldn't be. Psalm 119, verse 68, <clears throat> excuse me, says to God, you are good and you do good. God's always good and so all of his works are good. God, you're good and you do good. God's primary work, <clears throat> excuse me, in the world today, <clears throat> ah, sorry, spring allergies, my eyes and my throat, <clears> throat> excuse me, uh, is populating his church. Uh, what's God doing in the world today? Well, he's calling out a people for his own name, the ecclesia, the called out group, that is the church. Titus 2.14 puts it this way. Jesus gave himself for us, this is God's work in the world today, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. So what's God doing? Well, he's calling out of the earth a people for his own possession. And what do they look like or what are they characterized by? Well, they are zealous for good works. See, God's work is calling out people, and when they're called to God himself, they want to do what God is up to. And so they have a zeal or an energy for good works which God is doing, and we participate with him in those good works. Now, primarily, we would say this, guys, we're always sharing the gospel, right? We're always looking for opportunities to share with others the hope we have in Christ. Everything on this earth, guys, where does it go? It burns up. This earth as we know it, Scripture is clear, 2 Peter says it's going to burn up. All the elements, what do they do? They burn up before God creates a new heaven and a new earth. So the thing that lasts forever, it's people. It's people like you and I. We're part of God's work on the world in calling people out to God through faith in Christ. That's part of God's work in the world, and we participate. Now, we know John 15 says, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. We don't have inherent power to bring about God's works. It's the Spirit of God who is the power of, of God on the earth today. We get to participate with God's works, but we're not pulling these things off for ourselves. If you get frustrated with the lack of growth in another Christian, or that you've shared the gospel for the nth, 13th time with somebody and they haven't believed, just take a chill pill. And remember, Lord, you're the one who brings things about. You give conviction. You give faith. You give transformation. I get to be a part of it, but guys, you and I, we're not running this show. As much as we think we are sometimes, we're not. So we participate, but the power is God's or it doesn't occur. So God's works in the world today. What of God's works am I particularly thankful for? You know, I'm, I'm thankful a guy shared the gospel with me. October 5th, 1976, and I got saved that day out of nowhere. I had no idea. That was God's work. You know what? The guy sharing the gospel with me, no kidding. He's looking around at everybody else. Mike's just the latest guy he shared the gospel. Oh, thank you. Sorry. Uh, Mike's just the latest guy. He said, it was Campus Crusade, right? I'm just one more guy, and he's just looking around. Okay, who else? You know, what's next? And I'm getting saved, out of nowhere, you know, Mike, the, the, the unhappy pagan, the guy doing everything he ever wanted and as miserable as he can be, 
And that's God's work that day. And Jim didn't know it. The guy sharing the gospel with, he didn't know it. And, but that's what God was up to. He got to participate and God brought me home. I'm internally thankful. So we participate. It's God's work. It's got to be his power. What are we thankful for? So what's God done? As you think about God's work in the world, what are you thankful for? It could be your own salvation. It could be the folks you've been able to share the gospel with. It could be a number of things. What, what are we thankful for? What should elicit praise from us to God? Uh, verses 13 through 15, praise for God's justice. Again, this is a little tangential. Uh, verse 13, the Lord looks down from heaven. So think of a, think of a, an, a theater, if you will, or a, a, an arena, and God's got the high seat. He can see everything that's going on in the field below him. The field is earth. The Lord, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The thought here is God's above and he sees everything. And he knows everything. And you can't hide a thing from him no matter how good a scam job you do on somebody else. You can't scam God. He knows what we're doing. He knows why we're doing it. God is observing all people at all times. Nothing escapes his notice. A person may be able to fool others sometimes, some ways, but no one ever fools God. Hebrews 4.13 says it this way. There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, guys, this text that says God looks down from heaven, remember that this world is a world filled with sin and sinners. And God is a just God. And when God sees injustice, you know what he must do? He must judge it. So this thought is God sees everything as it is so that when he brings about judgment, it's perfect. It's always all that it should be and nothing that it shouldn't be. His justice is perfect because he knows everything as it really is. Everything as it really is. Uh, Genesis 18, 25, if you remember the conversation Abraham had with the Lord when the Lord said, hey, I'm going down to bring justice on Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, and Abraham has that famous discussion, well, Lord, you know, what if there's 50 righteous people there? You know, would you spare the, the, the town for the 50? I'll do that. But, but Abraham's rationale was this shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just or what is right abraham knows lord you can't do anything that's unjust and god says you're right and i won't and i can't his justice will be perfect deuteronomy 32 4 again the rest of that verse says the rock god his work is perfect god's work is perfect for all his ways are justice. They're right or they are righteous. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. That's a characteristic of God. It never changes. You know, with enough money and the right attorneys, you got to have that. With enough money, no joke, Eric. With enough money and the right attorneys, wicked, evil people can often get away with wicked, evil deeds. But you know what? In the courts of heaven, nobody gets away. Nothing, nothing escapes God's notice. And God's perfect judgment, 
the, the example of the perfection of God's justice and judgment, His righteousness is in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for sinners. You know, we talked about uh, forgiveness last week. Uh, forgiveness sounds too easy. You say, I just confess my sins and God forgives all that stuff I did? And we say, well, yeah. It sounds easy for us, but it wasn't easy for the Father who gives the Son or the Son who, who suffers for our sins, right? It wasn't easy for God. Uh, confession, easy, relatively easy for us, so to speak. But you say, well, it sounds unjust. And you say, well, no, it's not unjust because someone really took care of your sin. This is the way Paul says it in Romans 3, which gets to this element of the justice of God. It says, uh, verses 25 through 26, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. So Jesus' blood, his life, his death on the cross, was adequate to remove the obstacle of our sin and our sinfulness between us and God so that a right relationship could be brought about again. Paul says it's received by faith, and then he concludes this, to show his righteousness at the present time. God's displaying his righteousness, his justice, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That when God pronounces you and me not guilty, it's absolutely right and just because of the adequacy of Jesus' sacrifice. He is just. The one is just. He's, there's no lack of justice or righteousness when he declares unrighteous sinners just because it's all based on the perfect sacrifice of Christ. He's just and he's the justifier of those who otherwise are in trouble. Think of this too. Those who stand before Jesus as their judge and not as their savior will receive perfect justice in his judgment on their sin. Now there's no thought that anyone gets to enjoy the pleasures of heaven forever apart from Jesus. Scripture is absolutely clear on this. So if I stand before God with my own righteousness there's nothing I can or should expect except God's perfect judgment. That will be just. This is what Revelation 20, verse 12 says. Uh, John is seeing this future point. He says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. This is a great white throne he sees. And books were opened, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Here's the thought. God doesn't need a book, right? But it's as if God brings out the evidence for every person that stands before him for justice. And the books, as it were, they show everything they did and why they did it. So that when God pronounces judgment, all you could say is, it's spot on. It's just what it should be. In fact, there's a passage, I won't remember the reference in Revelation where it says God gives those on the earth blood to drink because they shed the blood of the saints. And the angel said, they deserve it. It is justice. They shed blood, you gave them blood. It's justice. That's what we'll see when Jesus acts as judge at his great white throne. What element of God's righteousness and justice am I particularly thankful for? You know, if you see... Uh, um, terrible things done to people you can say and you can comfort yourself with this you know what god's going to make that right 
because he's a God of perfect righteousness and justice. That nobody gets away with anything, guys. Ultimately, nobody gets away with anything. Because for the saved, Jesus has adequately borne the penalty of our sins. For the unsaved, Jesus will mete out perfect judgment justly when he sentences them to an eternity separated from him. We'll say with him, just. And friends, it won't matter if it's your parent, if it's your sibling, if it's your child, if it's your best friend. Do you know what I'm saying? It won't matter. Because all God can do and all he will do, all you'll be able to say is, that was absolutely perfect justice. God got that absolutely right. Whether we can see that now or not, we will in the future. He gets justice absolutely right. What am I thankful for? It might just be my salvation. Or it might be on a bad day when I see horrific things being done by people to people that I know God's going to take care of that, if not now, later. Praise for God's steadfast love is the last of those four, verses 16 through 19. Uh, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in fan famine. So in the midst of life's storms, trials, and troubles, the psalmist says it's not the help this world can provide that we ultimately need, but the help that comes from God who loves us perfectly and whose love never fails or never ends. Steadfast, loyal love. A steadfast love is, that's, uh, steadfast love is ESV. Some will say loyal love, loving kindness, kindness, mercy, all are used to translate the Hebrew word kesed, that word's used 238 times in the Old Testament. And 123 times are from the Psalms alone. God's steadfast, loyal love. Guys, of all the descriptions God gives us himself, the first is holy and the second is steadfast love or loyal or faithful in this loving relationship he has with his own. You go to Psalm 136, every other line says his steadfast love endures forever. You know, we say biblically, if something's repeated, God's making a point, it's significant. You got a psalm where every other line says the same thing. His steadfast love remains forever. God's characterized by steadfast love. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, when God revealed himself to Moses, Moses says, Lord, I want to know you, I want to see you. And God says this in part, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, the eternally existent, the only God, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God says of himself, I abound, I overflow with loyal love. It never ends. God's eternal in all of his character. His love never ends. He delights in displaying loyal love to the objects of his affection. The power, so in contrast, the powers of the world are insignificant compared to God's loyal, faithful love. So if we have a problem in life, guys, we're fine about exercising biblical prudence and wisdom. Think of the book of Psalms. But ultimately, no matter what hoops we're jumping through, no matter what, what uh, paradigms we use of applying knowledge wisely to a situation, we ultimately want to be saying, 
Lord, your will be done. Lord, at the end of the day, you make this thing right, or you take care of this. We're not smart enough. We're not wise enough. We're not good enough. You're all those things. So ultimately, we're casting ourselves at your feet, trusting that your steadfast, loyal love, that you'll make this thing what it should be. So we want to be faithful in all the ways we know to be, but, but we don't take confidence that somehow we're going to bring this stuff off. Ultimately, we trust in God himself. Armies and warriors and machines of wars, guys, in some sense, they're the most powerful things we've got on earth, right? We can devastate cities. We can wipe out nations. You know, you can end life as we've known it in different areas with nuclear war. You can make sure nothing comes up there for a long time. But friends, all those powers, they eventually fail. Armies fail and, and warriors, you know what happens to warriors? They get old. Their knees get bad. I know something about this. They wear out. The horse used as an image of power, you think about back in their day. We don't think about this today, but if you had a horse, you could carry a lot of stuff and a long distance. That horse was power. And guys, militarily, cavalry was decimating to foot soldiers. A guy on a horse with spears and shields and arrows, a cavalry group could decimate foot soldiers. And then they came up with chariots and guys, initially, the armies with the chariots, they win because the power of the horse. What do we still characterize power and engines today by? By horsepower. This was the image of power. And God says, nope, my steadfast love, it's better than all of that. Trust in me versus whatever your concept of power is. Trust me more than that. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 say this, quoting, God has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I won't fear, what can man do to me? God says, I'm with you, you've got me, we say, okay, I'm good to go forward. With whatever's going on, I'm okay. God's steadfast love for us has never been more fully on display again than in Jesus' death on the cross for us. So, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. There's a song along that line, right? Do you remember Lamentations 3? You know, Jeremiah has survived the downfall of Jerusalem. Guys, we have no idea what this looks like. Foreign army comes in and they kill you, you know, with arrows and swords and spears and it's your family, you know, it's your friends. And, and you come through that and, and what does Jeremiah say? Because he lived through it. And he says, you know what? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases just keeps coming up, more constant than the sun, never ceases. If every friend forsakes us, if everything we trusted fails, in the darkest void, in the deepest valley, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It can't. It's God's quality itself. Psalm 13, 5 says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love, my heart shall rejoice and your salvation, that's, that's a source of joy and therefore joyful shouting, right? The focus on God's steadfast love, that I can count on it. No matter what's going on, I can count on God's loyal love forever. The conclusion, verses 20 through 22, our soul waits for the Lord. He's our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. So at the end of the day, 
joyful shouting is tied to this hope, this confidence, this trust in God and his loyal, unfailing love for us. And it becomes circular because the more I realize his loyal, unfailing love, the more joy I have to give him shouts of praise. Have we come to the same conclusion the psalmist did, that God is worthy of our thanks and praise <clears throat> Excuse me, because of his powerful word, his sovereign works, his perfect justice, and his unfailing steadfast love? What would you add? What would you add to that list? If I want to be characterized by thanks and praise to God, that the words of my mouth overflowing from my heart, focused on God and his excellencies, what would I add to that? Because all of us almost certainly would. We'd say, Lord, when I see this, what you've done in my life, that's what I'm thankful for. Or when I contemplate this from your word, that's what I'm thankful for. We should have our own list. Is an attitude of thanksgiving and praise the spiritual clothing we put on each morning? So before you turn on talk radio, before you put on Fox News, before you get on social media... Have we clothed ourselves in our right minds so that we can listen to things and, and be helpfully, appropriately critical of what we're hearing and not being taken in by the sarcasm and the naysayers, but continue to live out this call to have an attitude of thanksgiving for who God is and what he's done? Thanks and praise. Are we starting our day clothed and in our right mind? Are our hopes ultimately settled on God and his loyal love for us so that we live in confidence with a glad expectation for the future. Guys, you know what's going to happen to every person in this room? You're going to die. How's that for a good day? You're going to die. I went to church and they said, happy day, I'm going to die. Okay. <clears throat> We're going to die. You're not made to live on this earth as it is in these bodies. No one does. So we're either going to die, that'll be a good day, or we're going to hear Jesus call and we're going to join him in the air. But either way, life as we know it now in this earth with these bodies, it, it doesn't last. It's never meant to. It's a given. So we are expecting something far, far better that lasts forever. If you're suffering the worst day of your life, you know what you can say? Thank God a better day is coming. And the day lasts forever. That's your future. So... We have, a, we have a hope in God's steadfast love because, guys, it goes on forever and forever and forever. With that, if you would stand, and if the words of this prayer that come from the psalm reflect your heart, why, uh, read this, pray this out with me. Lord, you are perfect in all you are and in all you do. And Jesus is the perfect revelation of your word and your work. Lead us to greater understanding of your ways that we might declare your praise as you deserve. May the words of our mouths and the works of our hands reflect your justice and loyal love.